Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from Forever is Too Long, the science fiction classic of immortality written by Chester S. Geyer. If you could live forever, would you want to? A scientist discovers he is immortal. His first reaction is intense happiness, and he makes plans for his future and that of his family. But then he has to watch his family grow old and die while he stays young and healthy. What can he do with the gift of forever? What should he do? Can he erase from his mind and heart all feeling and the need for love? And worse, can he always be sure of his superiority in a changing world? He will have to answer all these questions and more when he discovers other immortals and must make a decision a decision that will change the world far more than even an immortal can envision. Here is the story of a handful of men and women who lived from the middle of the 20th century into our future. What did they make of their lives? If you found you could live forever, what would you do? Search for wealth, power, happiness, or death? What could sustain you for 200 years? For a thousand is forever too long to live. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from Forever is Too Long. Chapter 1 Trevor slowed the coupe as he approached the crest of the hill. He glanced into the rearview mirror, noted that the stretch of road slanting down behind was void of following cars. Deciding that the opportunity was too good to miss, he brought the coupe to a stop. Dave Robbins, slumped in the seat beside Trevor, sat up with a start. Huh. What's the matter, Stan? One o'clock and all's well, Trevor responded, fumbling in his pockets for a cigarette. Just wanted to look at the scenery. This is my favorite spot, you know, and it's a wonderful night. Even without Annette to supply the necessary romance? Robbins eyed Trevor cynically and stretched. Even without Annette, Trevor said. She... Well, she's swell, but it doesn't take a woman to help me appreciate the finer things of life. Trevor got the cigarette burning and leaned forward to gaze at the vista which spread on all sides below him. It was early morning in the late spring of 1947. Rain had fallen a few hours before, but now the sky was clear, a glitter with the far-flung splendor of the stars. The silver crescent of the moon added its illumination to the scene etched the rolling fields of northwestern Illinois in shades of black and gray. A warm, soil-scented breeze blew in through the open windows of the car, and Trevor breathed it in deeply. His eyes took in the star-strewn sky and the shadowed fields, then turned to the cluster of lights far down the road ahead, which marked the location of Oakton. Trevor was conscious of Robin's growing restlessness, but for the moment he ignored it, as he lost himself in contemplation of the sweep and glory of the night. He could not quite understand the fascination which vast spaces held for him. Had Robbins pressed for an explanation of why Trevor regarded the hill as his favorite spot, Trevor realized he would not have been able to answer very clearly. All he knew was that the illimitable spread of the heavens gave him a sense of perspective, made him aware of how small and insignificant he was how petty his doubts and problems in comparison to the cosmic scheme. And always, afterwards, he came away refreshed. 
Trevor took a final puff of his cigarette and tossed it out of the window of the coupe. He felt better. He realized he'd been doing a bit too much thinking lately, about Annette and his work at the college and the years ahead. A bit too much thinking. The thoughts had got all tangled and mixed in his head. But now he found himself able to look at his affairs in something approaching logical order. He was thirty-two. It was time he made up his mind about a lot of things. He was in the twilight of his youth. He had to stop thinking and begin doing, because there wasn't much time left for doing. Dave Robbins stirred again. His voice cut into the silence, edged with impatience. For God's sake, Stan, how much longer are you going to keep sitting here? Not much longer. I just wanted to do some thinking. Oh, is that what you stopped for? In a way. Robbins grinned in friendly derision. Just another eccentric genius, huh? Boy, what I have to put up with. First that long-winded speech by our colleague, Professor Jepson, at the meeting of Norcross this evening, then a complete and utter silence by Professor Stanley Trevor, the brilliant young physics instructor from Oakton College. Seems all I do is swing from one extreme to the other. You could do worse, Trevor observed, and as far as that goes, you didn't have to attend the meeting tonight. Oh, no, neither did you. But you know as well as I do that old Prexy Hallowell is keeping a bilious eye on us for advancement in our respective departments, and that every meeting, lecture, and musical we attend raises us a notch higher in his exalted opinions. Trevor shrugged. I was really interested in the meeting. But I guess what you said about Hallowell is true. We're still pretty young, you know, and old Hallowell probably wants to make sure we've sowed our wild oats before he gives us a boost. Yeah, damn his nasty old mind, Robbins grunted. Stan, what we need to do is pull something sensational. A really world-shaking discovery. You in physics and me in chemistry. Ha <laughs> ha, Trevor mocked. Abruptly, he became serious. I've been doing a lot of fooling around with the college cyclotron. Atomic power stuff. It may pan out, but probably not until I've got a beard way down to my bulging waistline. I know, Robbins sighed. There isn't much time for private research, what with classes, lectures, meetings, and all the rest of the formula and ritual with which a college instructor's life is complicated. I could think of worse ways to earn a living. Yeah? Well, anyway, I guess it's the same with all professions. You spend the best years of your life trying to get on top, and it's not until you're an old man that you finally do. And by that time, you're too old to enjoy yourself. That's life, Dave. Isn't that the hell of it? Too bad a guy can't live to be two hundred or so. Or forever. Forever. Robbins caught the word with sudden breathlessness. Just imagine living forever. That would be something, eh, Stan? I suppose it would. You suppose? I know damn well it would. Okay, then go mix yourself up an elixir and quit slobbering all over me. Huh. If an old wizard like Hausman with his knowledge of biochemistry, can't do it, what do you expect of me? I'm just a two-bit instructor in a two-bit college. Trevor chuckled. Then confine yourself to two-bit thoughts, chum. His voice turned gentle. Immortality would be nice. Darned nice. Forever in which to see all you want to see and do all you want to do. Trevor shrugged with something approaching irritation at his flight of fancy, took a last look at the jewel-scattered sky, and reached out a forefinger to the starting switch of the coupe. 
His body jerked into rigidity. Something was coming down out of the sky, a thin, glowing streak that fell with flashing speed. And it was near, so near that the sound of its striking was audible as a dull, faint thump. Trevor whirled to Robbins. Dave, did you see it? I'll say. That was a meteorite, Stan, and it fell almost in our laps. Trevor completed his act of pressing the starting switch. Might be something which would interest Chad Barton. The wild astronomer would never forgive us if we passed up the chance. The thing fell somewhere in that field, at the bottom of the hill, to the right. Trevor meshed gears, and the coupe slid into motion. At the bottom of the hill, Trevor pulled over to the side of the road and followed Robbins from the car. He peered into the dark a moment, then pointed. There it is. See that wisp of smoke? That's steam, Robbins corrected. It's hot, and the ground is wet. Say, you don't intend to go through all that mud. What's a little mud? Trevor bent and rolled up the cuffs of his trousers. If you're going to be finicky, you can stay right here. The hell with you, Robbins rejoined. Hastily adjusting his own trousers, he followed after Trevor. A short walk of some dozen yards brought them to the site of the meteor's fall. The force of its contact with the ground had made a hole five feet in diameter. Tendrils of steam arose from the hole, now beginning to thin. If it's a meteor, it isn't a very big one, Trevor decided. The point is, Robbins said, what are we going to do about it? Nothing right now. It's too hot to fool around with, and we aren't dressed for excavating. We'll return in the morning with all the proper equipment. But suppose someone else saw it fall and beats us to it? Hardly likely. The meteorite was a small one. It couldn't have been seen by anyone farther away than we were. They returned to the coop. With the tire tool, they scraped the mud from their shoes. Then Trevor slid back under the wheel, and they completed the remainder of the trip back to Oakton. Dawn found Trevor and Robbins back at the scene, dressed in boots and jackets, and armed with shovels. The pit left by the impact of the meteor had not been disturbed. And as far as Trevor could see, judging from the footprints in the soil, he and Robbins had been the only persons so far to approach the spot. So far, so good, Robbins commented. He hefted his shovel. Well, let's get to work. The thing wasn't big and should have cooled off by now. Daylight showed him a tall, lean figure with a long, gaunt face. His bony cheeks and chin were dark with heavy stubble. His eyes were deep-set, fringed thickly with lashes, and startlingly blue. Not so fast, Trevor said. Chad said something once about radioactive meteors and I'm not taking any chances until I'm sure this is one of the common nickel-iron variety. Some brats we'd raise if our genes and chromosomes got knocked around by radioactive emanations. No brats for me, thank you, Robbins rejoined. Me? I'm batching it. And for good. Suit yourself, Trevor grunted. He stooped to open a leather instrument case, which he had brought along. From a padded compartment in its interior, he lifted an electroscope. Holding the device in an extended hand, he leaned cautiously toward the pit. The gold leaves were charged and distended. Watching them intently, Trevor saw a faint flutter of movement. The minutes ticked away. His arm began to ache. Slowly, ever so slowly, the gold leaves of the electroscope drew together. Finally, Trevor relaxed and stepped away from the pit. The thing's radioactive, all right. But from the rate of discharge of the scope... I'm certain it isn't radium, nor even uranium or thorium. Something else, eh? Robbins whispered. He glanced up at the sky. 
The thing came from up there, out of space. We're not positive we know all the elements here on Earth, but from out of space. Stan, we may have stumbled on something big. Maybe. Trevor eyed the pit, frowning in thought. Guess we can take a chance on digging it up. The thing's only weakly radioactive, but we'd better be careful just the same. They plied their shovels eagerly, in turn. The sun climbed higher into the sky and became warm. A mound of earth was growing beside the pit. Trevor and Robbins shed their jackets, rolled up the sleeves of their shirts. The periods of rest grew more frequent. Both men were exhausted, bathed in perspiration. Finally, Robbins released a shout. Tall as he was, his head was below the level of the pit. Hit it! Stan, I hit it! Trevor jumped to the pit's edge. Might be just a rock. Use the blade of your shovel. See if you can pry it up. It's not a rock, Stan. Metal. Rough and jagged. Robbins got the blade of the shovel under it, applied leverage, and the object pulled free. Don't touch it, Trevor cautioned. How are we going to get it out? Get it on the shovel, then lift it as high as you can. Trevor reached into the pit. As Robbins followed his directions and raised the meteorite on the shovel, Trevor grasped the handle and lifted it out the rest of the way. He dumped the meteorite on the ground. Robbins climbed from the pit, and together they examined their find. The meteorite was a gnarled, craggy mass the size of a man's head. It was obviously metallic, and such of its surface as protruded through its coating of sand and clay showed a dull, greenish black. It still radiated a faint heat. Well, there's our pie, Robbins remarked. Still intend to make Chad Barton a present of it? I think we'd better wait a while, Trevor answered slowly. There are indications that we've got something here. We'd better make sure just what before we do anything else. Keep it dark, too, eh? That might not be a bad idea. Trevor stretched aching muscles, then reached for the shovel. Come on, Dave, we've got to get this hole filled up. We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from Forever is Too Long. If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.